to give President Nixon credit for this because I'm going to tell you exactly how it happened. I didn't want that job, but and he had a long thing President said to work. And uh, in April of 1969, <clears throat> he called a meeting at the White House, about six people. He had VOB, he had Justice, he had Commerce, VOB, Justice, Commerce, State, and myself. And every one of them gave him a very articulate reason why the native land claims didn't need addressing. Justice did on the legal basis. There was no legal, there was no legal uh, obligation. BOB uh, did on the budget. The state did it on, it was a country in this whole background. And when it finally was over, at that point, he said, well, let's hear from Wally. I'm the last guy to talk. And he structured it that way. He didn't know what I was going to say, I'm sure. And I told him I agreed with BOP, and I agreed with State, and I agreed with Commerce, and I agreed with Justice. There wasn't any legal case, money problem, all that. And I said, Mr. President, all those things are true, but this is a moral issue, not a legal. And he cut everybody off. There was no oil company, no nothing, no pipeline involved. He says, I'm going with Wally. He turned around, dismissed the thing, and says, go. And uh, there's been a lot of comment in the, in the 20 years since then that he did that on account of the pipeline. That's not true. Now, I know that. The pipeline even wasn't an issue there. You see, this is April 69. And that decision was made right then. And I always said that if President Nixon did it, did nothing else, and he and I had all our problems. I said he solved that issue right then, and I'll never forget it. When I said I agreed with everybody, I wasn't argumentative. But I said, Mr. President, this is the moral issue. And he, I didn't even get out of my mouth and dismiss the rest of it. But he was surprisingly good on Indian issues. Hey, let me tell you, he carried that job. And uh, at no time, whenever I recommend anything, would he even question it on that issue. I don't know. So uh, I'm just making a point in history because I'm getting tired of them saying they settled that on account of the pipeline. That's a bunch of bullshit. I can say that. <laughs> it might have ended up down there mixed up somewhere where the oil industry said do this or that. But let me tell you. Uh, you see, he signed that in December of 74, <clears throat> and there's still a tape somewhere where we met out at university when he talked to him on the phone. Right, right. You probably got to maybe have that tape or something. But anyhow, uh, the pipeline bill was signed in February of 74. This was December 71. I'm giving you a little background, not for any other reason, because I don't want to color it. That's a fact. <laughs> well, that's uh, one of the things I'm really quite excited about yeah. is that enough time has gone on that, that President Nixon's papers are now open okay, in the archives, and I have not been through for that era, but I think well, I can just, I have a retentive mind. I don't write a lot, but I can just put in verbalize that whole meeting, and that, is, that was it. Hmm. Well, and he had, a, well, he's a very complex person, a brilliant man, totally insecure, and that's a gutty. Uh, listen to the hate and fear. Rather, he had two sides, the light and dark. I I could play on the light side better than anyone else. He would have won. No one else around him out there. Never lost a battle ever I took the president. And that was a problem. Then he had the dark side. And he was comfortable with the dark side. Kissinger played on his dark side better than anyone else. He destroyed the guy playing on his dark side. And the staff played on his dark side because it got his attention quick. His light side was the side I worked on, and, and, and Bill Rogers could do well. And he loved it, and that was that native land cleansing. He, he did, he'd just go after that. And so that complexity got him in trouble because more people played on his dark side, which he was comfortable with. Insecure men are, are very comfortable on the dark side. Insecure men. Right. And so uh, that's enough of the native land claims, but I wanted to give you that little bit of touch in there. Well, because that was real. <laughs> right. Well, sort of one of the things, going back to the 
to... Let's go before that then. Yeah. Sure, the beginning of all this that I've been curious about is that uh, people up here forget now because the Republican mm -hmm. Party obviously has such a dominant presence sure. in our political system, but certainly it did prior, prior to your election in 66, right. uh, particularly on a statewide basis, it seems that Senator Greening and the rest of these people had, mm -hmm. had a lock on things. And uh, I've been through the vote returns of your 66 election, and mm -hmm. it was obviously you won by a little more than a thousand votes, sure. and you did obviously well in Anchorage and Fairbanks, but you didn't really get killed in the bush. I and in fact, that. in fact, in the interior, you actually, I think, won the interior election district. Mm -hmm. and so I guess the first question I'd have is that that um, Stu Udall had started putting the, the freeze on state selections in '62. So there's been five years of nothing going on with land claims prior to that election. And did um, the native land issue play a role in, in your strategies for, for the 66 election? election or? Not necessarily mm -hmm. as much as I was running as a unifier and not a divider. Uh, the Democratic Party, which I was very close to, actually another one, used the native land claims and that whole issue as a, a scam. And it's like when you'd all, we had a meeting in Fairbank, well, I, I don't want to get poor in the election. Right. Before the election, it was basically, it was placating. It was like nice little boys, we listened to them and didn't do anything. It's been on for years. And the old attorney in Juneau, he used to come up and see me, the old man, helped me out. Um, native or? You know, white guy, always handled the native claims. Gray-haired old man, mentioned oh, his name. Uh, lefty, uh, um, was he, a, he was an anchor. He was. A, he he was in Juneau, I think. He lived in Juneau in Seattle. Not with Bill Paul. Bill, B Bill Paul. Right. Yeah. Well, you see, he fought that with his heart. Right. And but they placated him. Now that's a that's probably too much of a put down. <clears throat> but they weren't. They never grabbed grabbed the issue. So Johnson, the president, told you all, he'd okay, 185 million on royalties of the Outer Continental Shelf. Well, shit, there weren't any royalties. You know, royalties on nothing is nothing. <laughs> and I told you all that. And so, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Right. So in the 66, <clears throat> I knew all this stuff, but I didn't play game. I ran for opening up the Arctic and economic development, and I was looking at the state as an owner state more than a government-managed thing. See, this owner state thing, I'm going to do a book on, but I've been on that for years, you know. And so it's a, it's a complicated thing. People don't want to accept it. It's socialism. Well, bullshit, it's not. You know, I know what it is. So I, understanding that, I could communicate exceptionally well with the older native people, the tribal heads. They liked it. I, I could talk that language. So my point was, it wasn't the Native Land Claims issue as much as my understanding them. And I didn't get a lot of vote, but I was accepted. They didn't dislike me. They right. didn't know me, but they didn't dislike me. And so that's up to 66, and that's the reason. But I had ran two statewide elections before that. Right. That Republican thing, and I had to run against the Republican Party the first time. Well, the Natives didn't particularly like or dislike me for doing that. They liked the freedom of my being able to do it. I just said, this is what I'm going to do. Especially in that Nome election in 58. <coughs> and so that's sort of the background, but I was always comfortable with uh, those tribal leaders. See, I didn't placate them. Right, well now, <coughs> after you were elected in 66, um, obviously early 67, you you appointed Donald Burr as your attorney general That's at that right. point. And, <coughs> and I know that... Uh, he didn't last long. He didn't last long, but... That was part of the read. He did last long enough to to start the test case on the Nanana I, selections. And I was wondering, how did all that come about? I'll tell you, right after I was elected, remember, I, I took the federal government to court. Right. On the land. Right. And I told Don Burr that, by God, I'm going to help settle this issue. And then I... I brought in a young native, Maury Thompson. I carried him all the way through. And I put Byron Malott and Willie Henson on this Rural Affairs Commission. Remember that one? Right, well, that comes, that's later in the, 
Well, it's seven. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah. yeah. Well, Don Berthing, he is a very good man, but he instinctively didn't have a feel for it and didn't think they had anything coming. There was a meeting in Fairbanks where he gave a speech basically telling the natives they didn't have any right. Right. Very quietly, I just called on him and brought in Ed Boyko. Right. Now, uh, Boyko actually sort of came on the scene. I mean, there was a lag time when, when, when Ed came in and he was a special assistant That's and right. Burr was still there and then Burr That's eventually exactly left. Right. Did, did you hire Ed then as a response to the sort of the mess that Burr was making? No, plans? I hired, work? I'll tell you why I hired Ed Boyko, because he's a creative, uh, he's a creative, unfearful, that's not a good word right now, <laughs> uh, attorney. And he was a Democrat, but he had an instinct. I operate by instinct. He had a, he felt comfortable with taking the federal government to court and the Native Lands Claim issue to fight it. He was comfortable. Don Burr is a very competent attorney, but he wasn't as comfortable. You see my point? Right. And so you have to have that, you have to have a real feel for what you're doing to win. You can win with brains alone. But on these big issues like my taking the president and saying it's a moral issue, you can win it on, on brains alone, but you don't these emotional issues. You've got to feel them. Did, was it, <coughs> it Burr's idea to file the test case, or was that oh, no. your idea? Or? Well, I, I told him. Okay. You know, and because uh, I... Uh, uh, I knew where he was coming from, and he basically didn't think they had a case. You know, it, he meant it. It was sincere. I don't think there's anything else there. I'm not sure. Uh, but I, after the speech in Fairbanks, you'll have to get that time. I can't remember that time. Right. Well, that, was, that was in early the. <clears throat> there had been the 1966 October meeting of, of the Native community. And then they went up to Fairbanks to continue to try and get organized. And, and I know that Burr showed up for that, that meeting. That case you said Burr filed. Give me a little background <clears throat> on that again. Well, what, what it was was um, State of Alaska v. Stuart Udall. Yep. And what it challenged, basically, was that the Interior Department had refused to process uh, state land selection right. applications we at, took him to court. at Nanana. And the reason mm -hmm. that they had done that was because um, there had been protests filed from the local native community saying, hey, we had used an occupied these Yeah, I remember that now. See, what I, what, I, I remember that now. What I did first, the first thing we did was file a suit against the federal government, named the Secretary of the right. Interior. And the Ninana case, and I remember that, I, I'm, I'm getting, I gotta go back to my file. That case of Ninana, I didn't want him to file that against that natives. You know, I, I'm saying, hey, there's a problem here. Now I remember that. But there was a speech in Fairbanks. He said, well, let, let that make, let's make that a test case, because you already filed a suit against the federal government. That's coming back to me. Mm -hmm. On the uh, freeze the illegal. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's go that route. But the one I remember the most was when I gave the speech in Fairbanks, and it was anti, sort of anti-native. All of my things, right. I'd have to get that somewhere to follow. <coughs> and uh, there's no malice of forethought. I just thought, hey, I, I operate in this thing about you have to really believe in what you're doing or you don't win. Right. Well, now, um, obviously, you filed at that point in by early '67 a lawsuit against Secretary Udall over the land freeze. And, That's right. Uh, throughout the spring of that year. Um, the Interior Department was trying to put together its first uh, land claims bill. And I was wondering, what did you have any dealings with Secretary Udall at that time? Udall, How are you guys getting along? U Udall came up and we talked. We flew to Fairbanks together. And he had his prepared speech and he threw it away because I gave my speech off the cuff. And that's when he told me the 100, 185 million mm -hmm. on the Outer Continental Shelf and uh, how many acres of land was that, 8 to 12? Yeah, 8 to 12. And, uh, and I remember, I remember as, I, as clear as I can remember, uh, in the speech I totally opposed that approach because it was 
I didn't criticize the bill as much in the speech as I did the approach, the idea. And you know, through his speech, we talked about what the president, the president said yes, 185 million off the revenue of the outer continental shelf, and uh, there was nothing. Right. Well, I know that that earlier that that spring, I've seen some some memorandums in uh, memoranda in, in Senator Bartlett's files that apparently you had gone back to Washington and had met with Senator Bartlett and okay. Secretary Udall. And this was prior to to the department coming up with its first bill. That's um, right. I told them we had to settle it, and I was hoping they would. I didn't want to, you know. But I didn't think. Uh, I don't want to talk say too much, Don. But I didn't think they really wanted to settle it. I mean, they didn't have the political will to face up. Yes, to it. I, it was it was an ongoing thing. It was a it was a political gesture, but it wasn't it wasn't really meant. I don't think they meant it. You know, I, I was sensing that. Bob did, but he but he couldn't come up with the the convening thing. You know, Udall's heart was right, I think, and I think the gesture was president was right. And they said, well, let's let's give him something. 185 million. Um, anyhow, that was it. All right. Well, I wish I could remember more, but I remember that. Okay. Well, I guess the. The next major event that occurs, and it's interesting in terms of how the bill finally became law, looking back on it, is in late 67, um, you and, and Ed Boyko organized this task force group. Right. And um, I guess the question, I guess the first question is, uh, why did you do that? Was that a recommendation from Boyko to you? Did, uh, did my, you think that my up? My idea. Uh, That's I brought, before Boyko ever got there, <coughs> I brought Thompson then, and we started formulating how do we get these people involved. And my feeling for them goes back to, to 54, in fact, the mayor of Savunga. And I saw the pathetic thing, I'm up there. This is 54, it's a long time ago. In fact, he was in the hotel about three weeks ago and came to see me. He's still mayor. And my problem wasn't with any local thing. My problem was the federal government. And we saw a Russian ship out there. It looked like a floating city with all these boats and stuff. And he made a statement I'll never forget. It. I quoted it many times. He's looking out there, not talking to me. He's talking to himself. And he says, they fish all the time and we don't even know what's there. We're standing on that little looking out, the Savunga, and he was it was not what he said, but the way he said it. And I said, I'll get those bastards someday. <laughs> and I meant, because the federal government, our government was so rich, they didn't need us. And they didn't need the food of the Pacific. We had given, we had too much farm stuff. And so uh, they were literally trading our rights for bases around the world to be friendly. I'm making a very, you, you tracking me? Oh, no, I'm. I know quite a bit about the whole well, history of all that. But that was the whole thing. And so that's where my first thoughts came in about the problem of the Arctic. And I became, I started then to become more of a student of the Arctic. And that's where I spent most of my life thinking, you know, the, not, not the confrontational thing, but why. One is, we're not needed, we're weren't. And two, America is basically our competitor. And so our economic ties aren't with America, they're with Asia. And it was that same time that I started working with uh, Sasayama. And we could, we could finally have some ties with Japan, but we couldn't even get past Seattle because they were our competitor and they owned us. And so that whole mental thing came together. I'm trying to give you a, a, a feel for what happened. And so the rural affairs thing had to do with <coughs> The people I knew in the Bush weren't that many, uh, and how do we get them involved? And that's why I got a young Hensley, and I didn't know it that well, and Byron Malott, and that whole group. I think it was 25 of them. Well, it was a whole bunch, yeah. Yeah, at least and I said, sit down, let's talk about the problem. And then Boyko uh, turned out to be the right guy because he has the instinct for fairness. He's, he's, he's a fighter. And so uh, well, now, that's sort of the, how it came.
Right. Now, one of the things that came out of that, interestingly enough, was um, it was the first 40 million acre bill, which obviously is the way it ended up. And uh, that was not the way that the group started out. And I've, I've gone through and reread the press clippings of, of all of that. And, and uh, you stood up at the end of that process and said, yes, I agree that a 40 million acre settlement would be fair here. Um, was there was that difficult for you? Was was that a major? No, no I tell you what, and the land thing was a little more difficult than the money. I'm a great believer in Will Rogers' old statement that buy land ain't making anything. And so the land thing, well, I I talked to, I talked to Scoop Jackson about that great land, and Scoop was at eight to twelve million to start with, right. because he what's attainable, not what's fair. The 40 million acres was a little more difficult than the money was. The money was absolutely no problem to me uh, because money is doable. And the 40 million acres didn't bother me because I'll tell you why. Uh, they made it, you don't know the history, but I, I fought against the statehood bill in 52. Maybe you don't know that. No, I been through all the stated stuff. Okay, well, and and I fought Atwood on that, something bitter. Pickles heck was the longest editorial here. Anyhow, I'm back there. Bartlett's there, and Greening's there, and Atwood's there, Truman's president. I've never been there in my life, and so I went and made my plea for the land because we weren't going to get our resources to go privately. Land Act of 21. I'm not an attorney. I'm just a kid, you know. I'm not an attorney today. Well, I'm not a longer a kid. I think, think <laughs> Anyhow, uh, land was always an issue with me, but now we got the hundred million acres. That's we committed that bill. I'm I'm secretary. Egan was against to start with. We got the great amount of land. Then he came along. Here's the thought: it's another way to get land from the federal government and get it back into something you can do something with. And so the forty million acres became acceptable, even in Congress. Because there's a lot of people in Congress said, my God, you know, how are you ever going to get land privately up there? And so that little bit of thought helped turn that a little bit. See my point? Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. That thought. And, uh, and then uh, Wayne Aspinall. It's funny how God helps you. And, I'll, and this helped in the bill now. This helps a lot of things. In 1954, I made my second trip to Washington. I was elected national committeeman. Wayne Aspinall is a Democrat. I never knew him a load of old. No. And he came up to see me. He said, would you cut a radio tape for me for my election? And Because I was an extroverted young liberal Republican. And so I cut that tape with him. And he never forgot it. And uh, 14 years later, 15, he is the head of the committee, and I'm Secretary of Interior, and he became my, there was nothing he wouldn't do. <clears throat> so when we got on these battles, I had two great supporters. You couldn't buy them. Scoop Jackson and Wayne Aspinall. And Wayne Aspinall, every time he put something in that bill, he'd come see me. And he, there's one thing he insisted on, but I was kind of glad. I really liked it, and that is, they have to have the opportunity to succeed, and they have to have the opportunity to fail. And that was that 20-year limitation. He, and even after he retired, he used to fly up here to see me, you know, in the mid-70s, late 70s. So what I'm saying, part of that came together because when Aspinall had a lot of, if I might say, we had a lot of mutual respect and confidence, and Jackson the same way, but Wayne Aspinall had as much to do with that native land claim bill coming out like it did to anybody. I guess you know that. Right. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, okay. it's, you know, the uh, scoop actually had to use the House bill when they went into conference as the template. I, I and, understand. And they did that, obviously, because of deferring to Aspinall's, <coughs> Aspinall's views. But now, anyhow, Aspinall went along with that idea of private lands. You see my point? How we can get some away from that federal government, which is all encompassing. Well, it certainly turned out that way. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, the, the Native community has not been shy about about dedicating their land entitlement to the... And you see, it fits into the, my whole thought of the owner state, because it's really a collective society. 
You see my point? Mm -hmm. That's why that corporate thing, you know how that's put together? It's really private, but it's collective. And that's what the Arctic, that's where the Arctic works. Well, I'm giving you too much bullshit. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I find okay. this stuff very, very helpful. Okay, um, okay. Um, so I guess to, to go back for a second, as part of the task force um, activities, right, when you were still governor, mm -hmm. um, the commitment you made at that time of 40 million acres before you were secretary um, was obviously a, a major policy oh, it decision. Was. And, it was. And so that was not... Um, was that the sub uh, subject of any controversy inside your administration? Or oh, was Kelly yeah, that, or any people that was, upset about that? There was controversy until you explained it. I didn't put up with an awful lot of controversy. Not that I don't want it, but I couldn't explain it. I didn't want to. I didn't want to educate everybody on the reasons. And a decision, if I might say this now, is the best education in the world. Once you make that decision, people will try to figure out why and how you made it, rather than have to convince them on everything. And I, I'm a believer in that, you know. If make it, and then let them, if it's really wrong, you'll undo it. it wrong. Well, now, now, part of that... Um, I, had my, I had my adversaries quietly, but they were noisy. Well, now, um, Stu Udall sent a fellow named Bob Vaughn up to participate. I don't know if you remember him. I don't he remember was, he, was, he was the only real department representative from the secretary's office that was that participated in the task force. I probably and, remember him, I don't. Okay, well, I guess the, the question is, uh, when he walked out of, of those final meetings with the task force, he indicated to the press that he thought that the Department of the Interior, i.e. Stu Udall, could basically take the deal, the, yep. the, the compromise. And, um, there was a hearing, obviously, the next summer in front of Senator Jackson, and Stewart went in and disowned 40 million acres. Um, and I guess I don't know who got to it. Well, I guess the question was, did did you think at the end of the task force process that that there had been a deal here by all parties and that we were through with this? I, no, well, I can't remember. I just thought it, everyone accepted it. I didn't know if it was a deal. I thought it was accepted, but the bill didn't come out there. Right. Well, I mean, and certainly yeah. the reason that the, the whole... I never figure, figured out why Udall took the, uh, went the other direction, uh, unless it was an administrative one. As, as I've been able to figure it out, he got overruled by the Bureau of the Budget. Oh, could have been. That's because he, that's when I went to Nixon says, I don't care about the money, and mm -hmm. Nixon bought that. And, and I'm trying to think of the B.O.B. guy's name. I thought he was going to shit right there. <laughs> Okay, well, um, I guess that's that gets probably us true. He probably got it over the Right, that gets us into the the fall of 1968, and obviously there's been an election, and, mm -hmm. and uh, Richard Nixon has defeated um, Humphrey. Humphrey, and uh, and you, who obviously at that point have been sparring with the Department of the Interior over the land freeze and well, other I, issues, I'd taken them to court. Right, that was so, a big issue in my hearing. Right. That, I guess that's what I wanted to ask yeah. about was, was suddenly you have been nominated by the president to take over uh, the reins of Un, the... Unprecedented history. I, you know, at my hearings, they said, you know, that I not only had, you know, I had not only taken the federal government to court, I named the Secretary of Interior right. in the suit. Right. Now I was suing myself. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are you going to do, Mr. Secretary? They asked me that. Right. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. And I guess my question was, I've, I've read the hearing record, yeah. and, and um, obviously you had to indicate on the record that, that the freeze would stay for That's a couple right, of years. That's right, I did. And I, I was wasn't for that. But the president said, go along with, basically no one said anything, but they acquiesced. Uh, we could go, I said we'd hold it on during that session. Right, now did, did, uh, did you have, I guess, my, my two questions, one would be, did uh, you talk to the president about the policy with respect to the freeze during no. the confirmation thing? No, the confirmation. And then I guess the second thing would be, what about, what about Scoop Jackson? I assume you must have talked with him Scoop privately about Scoop and I about talked about a lot of that. And, and uh, I said, we'll hold, I said, Mr. Chairman, we'll hold uh, the freeze on during this session of Congress. And I said, after that, if we can't settle things by that session of Congress, then we're not going ahead. 
You know, the funny part about that, I got fired two weeks before that session was up. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess, uh, well, you had mentioned earlier that the, the first Jacksonvilles were relatively conservative in terms of the amount of land. Um, did, was it your feeling that, that Senator Jackson did not want to give out a lot of land, or did he? No, I don't think so. I think he thought it was enough. I don't think he was devious. I don't know. I, you know, can't read him that much. I don't think he thought it was attainable. I know that the, the money thing, everyone thought, my God, he'll never reach it. But the, the land. Uh, there was some there was some opposition to giving the natives that much land. I can't remember exactly who and where, but there was opposition. You know, that, that subtle political thing in Washington, that you, you don't know where it's at, but it's there. Uh, I don't, I think uh, Scoop probably took that out of the Udall bill. I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, I do know that when it was all over the president, publicly thank me for that thing. I can't remember the step. In my mind, I'm always about two or three years ahead of what I'm doing. Native land claims was through when I got a commission from the president. I think that way. I fight up to this point, real hard, way back here. Nobody knows about it. And finally you get here, then I don't dwell on this thing. I go this way. And then I back up and see how it's going now and then. I, to, to me, it's over. It's a little bit like the pipeline. I've been on it eight years, and God, it was eight. Now I'm, I'm, you know, it's kind of rolling. And so the native land claims, the landmark was in April 1969. It wasn't even a bill then, mm -hmm. but if that was, to me, it was over. You know how I think? It's like when you know you're going to marry your wife. You may not get married for two years, but it's over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that psychologically, I'm trying to tell you that yes, I was. Definitely involved all the time. It was over my mind. Right. That basically Nixon had made the commitment That's that we're exactly going to solve right. it, and so then and he says, and I'm going with Wally. In other words, they'd call me up and I tell them what I thought, and, and you know, I pushed it out the door and said, "Take care of it. It's, it's over." And I basically was that way uh, with the Interior Committee, both of them. I told you about Aspinall and, and, and Jackson. I can't remember details of. But no matter if I'd see him socially or what, you know, we'd make some points and, and uh, for be at the hearing. Right. Well, now, I guess the last major... Is that coming clear to oh, you? Oh, sure, yeah, sure, okay. sure, sure. The, the, the last major event of, of the 68 period um, that actually ended up having a lot of, of, of importance to how the, the details of the yeah. Claims Act worked was your decision to appoint Ted to take so, Bartlett's seat, right. and it would have turned out completely different in the end, I think, if Senator Stevens hadn't been there. Well, let me tell you why I did that. <clears throat> it was a very, I'll just give it to you in one simple form. He wasn't that much of a friend, but he was a friend. Ted Stevens is a survivor, and I knew that. He was a young guy, but he's the, he's the kind of guy that's a survivor. And Elmer Rasmussen might have done a better job for a year or two, or Carl Brady might have done a better job down the road, but they would become locked in like this on their viewpoint. That doesn't make them bad. Ted Stevens is just exactly what I said. He's a survivor. And uh, he's not a PR person. He's the opposite. But I, but I knew he was my majority leader in the Senate, right. and he knew how to get things done. He was, he li listened to creative thoughts, and kind of creative himself. And so when I put it, and it was a difficult decision. Ooh, boy, because he had lost two elections. Right, and he just lost to Elmer in the my primary. In the primary, right. it was tough. My wife helped me with that. Jack Coggill made one comment, Jack's no friend, that was a, that surviving thing, totally agreed. In fact, he came up with the thought to fit this whole thing, and so, and Ted was very insecure with me for many years, because I pointed it, very insecure. I never bothered him with that. 
fact, he supported uh, Hammond in the 78 election. And he lived to regret that because <laughs> I didn't even say anything. The people just, it was tough on him. He shouldn't have done that. But that's why I pointed it. He's a good battler. <clears throat> He hadn't supported. He didn't support me in the six-six election. Right, right. And I know he'd been, uh, I guess, a, a uh, Rockefeller Republican at one right. time when you, when you were involved or with Goldwater. Was it Nixon right. or Goldwater? I was a Rockefeller one Goldwater's time. Hmm. It was one or the other. I yeah, know that he was know. a he was a Rockefeller. Well, he was a Rock in '64. '64. I was. I wasn't for Goldwater. I. Uh, <coughs> Stayed out of that one. That was wasn't one of them. And, uh, but Ted, that's the reason I appointed Ted. He, he was a spirited survivor, basically a survivor. And that was that turned out to be a, a great prophecy. Right. <laughs> well, I guess the the last issue, and I'll, I'll let mm -hmm. you go, is um, I've always been curious um, uh, about your understanding of how you got appointed secretary. I, the, little, the little research I've done is that there was some governor of Montana or something who was the odds-on favorite. Uh, there's two things. One, I campaigned hard for Nixon, but I wasn't looking for a job. I turned the job down in the first asking. I think it's in my book, I'm not sure. Mitchell, I turned it down. And uh, he asked me if I'd keep an open mind. He said, I'll keep an open mind. And then, uh, Nixon has received a lot of money, I found out later, didn't know that, from the oil industry. And I had a short record, but I had a good record of being able to handle it. Boy, Kenai Refinery, mm -hmm. when Otto Miller said it didn't make any sense and pushed me down and wouldn't bid on it. Anyhow, and the way I had to take reading Bates to task. And that's when I did. That impressed him. And uh, God only knows that we never knew Santa Barbara was coming out. It came out four days later, but it was that ability to maintain that freedom and be free. And uh, Nixon made that choice himself because you don't go to the cabinet without a constituency. I didn't have any constituency. And John Whitaker told me <coughs> that in the transition headquarters from years later, that Roger Morton was the guy that they just knew was going to be appointed. He was the guy. And Babcock was sort of second because he was a Westerner and they wanted a Westerner. He was the governor of Montana. Montana. Right. If they had to be one, Morton had the lead of all the politicals and stuff. And they announced, in fact, they pretty much announced Morton. And so it got down, it got a division in the transition team. And Nixon came in and said, you haven't sent me the right guy. And, and Whitaker said, Mr. President, well, we don't know. He never said a word. He just rode upside down Hickel. Yeah. Whitaker told me that. <laughs> he says, that Jesus Christ, it shocked them off. <laughs> <laughs> huh. so well. There was no constituency there except him. <clears throat> I wasn't that close to Nixon. But I knew him well, and I was so straight with him. I wasn't trying to ever sell him. I wasn't looking for a job. It goes back to hell before he was ever running. I had a meeting with him once and told him, I knew him as senator. My point is, that's as close as I know about the, how I got it. Okay. Well, I very much appreciate the time. I guess the uh, I'd like to maybe come back in about eight or ten months after I've had a chance okay. to go through your papers sure. uh, in the archive. You might find things there that I don't remember. Right. Well, it's, I've had a lot of fun <laughs> going back and doing this stuff. Because I was a very activist, <clears throat> you know. So I can't, uh, I, I can't remember it all. But, uh, well, I guess the last question, and I'll let you go, is just out of curiosity, is uh, how do you think all this stuff has turned out? If, if you had Pretty to. Well. To do over again, would you do something? Wouldn't do much. I don't know a lot I'd do over. Uh, I would. I had an argument with Kleppy about uh, the public right-of-ways 
on rivers and streams. I wanted to let them use what they wanted, but I wanted the public to write where they hadn't had historical rights, the public to have a half a mile on both sides of the rivers. And, and, and Cleppy said, no, 25 feet's enough, let them buy the rest. And that pissed me off. <laughs> but other than the, that, these That's issues, a small thing. Right. The, the amount of land, no. Money, no. Uh, I w they need to clean up a little bit what I thought was an abuse of their rights under his land swaps done. I, I posed that on Anwar. I said, that belongs to all of us. It doesn't belong to just 25%. I can be pro-native land claim, but I'm not, I would not, if, if I thought they were abusing, I'd be against it. We came out strong against that. How, how about the, the sort of unfettered opportunity that they had with the money that obviously, particularly at a village level, there's been a lot of... They really squandered that, but that, hey, you can't legislate that. This is one of the things Wayne Aspinall talked about, and that's why he said they had the right to... We must give them the opportunity to succeed, but they also have to have the opportunity to fail. And that, that's why he had that 20-year deal, so they wouldn't squander that. And we talked about the money, he says, that's a human thing. If they squander that, we can't legislate that. You know, and they did lots of that, but some of them didn't. Right. You know, but, but you know what's what's interesting about uh, though is that is that obviously Congressman Aspinall had had been involved with Indian issues in the Congress for you know, years. twenty years, right. and and if you go back and you look at all of the Indian bills that he was yeah. involved in, he always had department supervision over the money. Standard. Even up through the Quinket Haida settlement. This one he didn't. And he cut it loose I, this time. You know, and he knew where I was coming from. I wanted, you got just a moment, I'll say sure. where I was coming from. I wanted this to become a country, not a state. And that was one of the things I pounded. I went back to see Truman about never saw him, saw Barker, and, and Tad. Never met either one of them. I, I really wanted this to be a country. And uh, <clears throat> so, Aspinall knew that. And I said, we've had too much federal government. Mr. Congressman, I, I just, boy, and I, and so he listened. He listened. And I said, just give us a chance, God damn it. <laughs> I said, God damn it. <laughs> you know, and if we fail, we fail. I don't think the reservation system of guidance is worth a shit. <laughs> well, certainly. Uh, and uh, Roy Hundo's doing a hell of a job. Yep. And Willie's doing a good job. And someone made a mistake. Uh, well, but I guess in terms of, I guess my question in terms of policy is that, is that that was a, that, a, a that everybody was a knew what they forward. were doing at the time, that, that we're going to do this as an experiment exactly to get these people right. out from under the thumb of the Bureau of We America. wanted to give them as much, as close to the, the system of America as we could. And I think, looking back at it and having to run BIA and doing all those things I saw in the South 48, this one made a lot of mistakes, but God damn it, they're so much further ahead of the others. It's no comparison. I, I, I mean, that's the way I see it, you know. So. Uh, okay, well, I very much appreciate the time. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, and I'll yeah. see you again. That's bullshit. You know, <laughs> you see, they don't. They have a right to lease it, and we manage it. If they don't manage it well, they go. And I thought, unlike Kansas, or Oklahoma or anything like that. And in the same way I told them on this elf thing, the same way I'm talking about taxes. They mix up ownership with taxes. And that is morally wrong because in the South 48, you pay a royalty, maybe it's 25%. Whatever it is, you pay a royalty to an owner. And then they come in and tax later. Up here, uh, damn it, it bothered me because they mix up taxes with ownership. They keep saying the taxes are so high. Well, I'm not going to argue that, but there's, that royalty belongs to us without any taxes. It's an owner thing, and it's a tough battle, and, uh, and that's why I formed Commonwealth North, to fight that battle of, of this unique difference of Alaska. And it is different. There's nothing like it under the world. It should have been a country, because here you're taking, yeah, America was founded as a free society, and free enterprise evolved out of free society, and government is uh, was the adversary to the ownership to keep it free you know to keep sure. it fair 
And then we have a capital-intensive system in a, in a free democracy to make it work. I asked the question years ago, how do you take a capital-intensive society and make it function with total government ownership? Now, that requires management. That's why I ran for governor in 66. And that's what I raised in the, in the 50s. Eisenhower knew it, and Danmert appointed me governor in 57. I said, no, get Stepovich. But we haven't faced that yet because we look out here and we think this is a private country. It's not. There's nothing private about it. it, it it's, a, it's a commune kind of a thing. And, uh, and in my book, I make a very clear statement of that. I don't know if you ever remember oh, it. I've read it. Well, but I'll just show you the clear statement of what, you see, seven-eighths of the world will, is always owned in common. And that's what saved me in Santa Barbara. And I said, you know, you're not going to homestead part of the ocean. We, this is ours. You know, and it was foreign to people. I said it was a meeting of 400 in Santa Barbara. <laughs> well, it's true. I'll just read you two paragraphs. The belief that we have too much government has been accepted without question by what must be a majority of Americans, Americans of all political persuasions. I totally disagree. There may be too many people in government, or government may be misdirected, but I will argue until I die that there is not enough government in those areas where life is being choked from living, transportation of cities, and the general environment. One more paragraph. What we must now realize for the first time in America is that it is really a collective world, but one in which we live so privately, without concern for the other person, for his desires and wants. Activities for strictly private gain become destructive, not only to others, but eventually to oneself. No matter how, how great, how vast, or how simple individual ownership might be, it must be looked upon as a passing thing. What good would it be if one owned it all and left an empty, emptiness in passing? In reality, one has but a lease on ownership during one's life. That obviously really represents, in terms of the communal nature of the ownership of sure. the native land base, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly, and that that come that came right out of the heart. You know, that's a belief. And so, in in, a, I know the Arctic world pretty well. I've traveled it all from Finland as far north as Finland and Point Barrows in Alaska, all the Canadian things, the Siberian thing. And in a cold country, Antarctica, I haven't traveled, but give you the same thing. Cold countries are basically collective because the individual thing, they're small populations, distances are vast, you can't get from here to there. Wickersham saw it, that's why we had the railroad and sewer to Fairbanks. Not to make a profit every 90 days, but to open up the country. And so governments in a, in a, in a, in a cold country have to think collective, and that's why I'm so difficult to understand. You know, the son of a bitch is a Republican, but he's not. He's a Democrat. He's not. Uh, you're not. You can't be. And ownership by government is foreign to American thinking. And ownership by government management is foreign to American thinking. Right. Well, if you look at the fight over TVA that went on. Well, well I understand. Years, you know. Well, but this country here, if you don't have a, a government here that's the advocate instead of the adversary, remember right. I said governments are adversarial. In Alaska, the last 16 years, we've had adversarial governments. But nothing can work if the owner is his own adversary. He's got to be an advocate to something. And uh, that's why I have to do that next book sometime, because I'm not going to live long enough, <laughs> really, mm -hmm. to get to influence that unless you're there. Because I was basically a, I thought like an owner when I was governor. I thought like an owner. Right, well, speaking of, of owners, the one thing that 
that just came to mind is that, that obviously at the end of the Claims Act, you know, in, in 69, 70, 71, the presence of the oil industry lobby was, was quite obvious. Was, oh, was, was the industry involved or concerned about land claims during your tenure as governor? Did I, you? I, I wasn't very aware of it, no. You see, I had figured out how to get that right away. In fact, Mo Benson, at 20th anniversary a year ago, said if we'd listened to Governor Hickel, we'd been 10 years ahead. I was going to take Wickersham's bill, which the president said this authorizes 1,000 miles of railroad in Alaska. It's primary purpose to open up the country. I used that act. We only had 500 and some miles. I was going to take that to Prudhoe Bay, and the right-of-way would have been then down the railroad right-of-way, and we wouldn't have had to fight that battle. That's what I was, I was thinking like an owner. And it shocked a lot of people, but I was thinking I ran the state of Alaska as if we owned it. <laughs> right, but I, I guess my, my question is none, oil of the, none of the oil guys came in. Oil guys came in, and while, while I was secretary gov or governor, I never saw any pressures for them on the native land claim. Christ, Exxon didn't want the pipeline, period. Right. Right, I, know about I had to put, you didn't know about it? No, I, I knew about oh, that. Oh, yeah, I, that I had to put them to the mat. Right. And so the, the land claims wasn't an issue because they didn't even want the pipeline. And uh, and so the in 71, there might have been push because we brought Exxon to the mat and we decided to go in August 70, 1970 with the pipeline. And I left right after that. I wasn't aware of, I don't think they were smart enough. They might have been. Uh, to understand the relationship yeah, between native claims and the pipeline? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know that that uh, they would do anything to get done what they want done. Uh, but I have to be honest with you, President Nixon's decision had nothing to do with the oil industry. I know that. Right, but certainly as governor, you didn't see their, no, their fingerprints around no. the claims. They weren't that friendly with me, you know, because of this, you know, they were using the country, and I said, that's no problem. Goddamn, don't, you know, this is us. Right, right. Well, listen, I've taken up okay. uh, what?